Hello. Thanks for tuning in yet again to Our Remarkable Brain. We strive to provide only the most remarkable, accurate, and thought-provoking information connecting literature to the world around us. Special thanks to our sponsors, without whom this would not be possible. Connect with us on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Here's this week's. Hi, guys. I'm so glad that you guys are continuing to engage in this series. As you know, or if you don't, uh, this is part of a three-part series that we're going to be having based on memory, talking a little bit about what it is, how it's recalled, the different specific aspects of it, and, and then the applications of it at the end. It's a very exciting and important thing for me, and so I really hope that you all take something away from it as well. Special thanks to our listeners and sponsors as well, because without you guys, this wouldn't be a reality. As a recap from the last episode, our brains encode memories in a couple different ways depending on the type of memory it is. The one that we're focusing on is episodic memory, and after encoding, consolidation happens in which the brain recognizes its thoughts. And finally, retrieval happens where a memory is recalled due to a retrieval cue. I only mention these things because they're going to become important as we move forward in our discussion. I want to start with an idea from a psychologist named William James. If we remembered everything, we would be as ill as if we did not remember anything. And I love this quote because I think it makes an interesting point about how we remember things. First and foremost, it's true. If we remembered every small, minute detail that happens every single day of our lives, our brains would go on overload. There would simply be too much information to be able to process ever. But luckily for us, our brain is pretty remarkable and has some defense mechanisms in place so that we don't do that. So since we don't remember everything, what do we remember? From From an evolutionary perspective, we are more likely to remember things that increase our fitness. That is, things that will keep us alive longer to reproduce more. So, for example, we're going to remember that one time that the tiger almost ate us. That memory is going that memory, excuse me, is going to stop us from getting eaten in the future. It seems like a pretty important thing to remember. And there was actually a study that found that rats also have selective memory, meaning that it's a trait that developed millions of years ago in our ancestors. So, presumably, we shared these answers, ancestors with rats. It also is an interesting implication because it shows that uh, we are not the only mammals and that, that have this selective memory ability. Uh, and so they're doing more research currently into what other mammals can uh, have selective memory as an evolutionary advantage. It also means that this, this mechanism has been around for a really, really long time. So it's something that was an evolutionary adaptive advantage and continued to be that way. And so there's a general group of categories that contribute to what we remember. They are consolidation, attention, memory recall, past memories triggered by one's environment, mood memory, blanking out, and duration neglect. That was a long list. I'll explain all of them. So for attention, it means that whatever we focus on given our emotional intensity at any given point, we are more likely to remember those things. So if we have really high emotional intensity because we're really freaked out about a science exam that we might have, that's something that we're going to remember because our attention will be focused on it. 
The next one is consolidation. Consolidation uses the stress hormones epinephrine and cortisol to enhance memory. These uh, are both hormones that kind of alert our body and mind to think, oh, something's going on. We should pay attention. So we imprint dangerous situations so that we remember them later more and then don't die or put our lives at risk. It's like the tiger. This is a good example of that. The third one is memory recall. And the premise of it is that painful emotional experiences are remembered far longer than those of physical pain. This is because what, what we think about for emotional pain uh, lasts longer, and in some ways, it is more important to us. So that means that each time we recall a memory, it's going to strengthen that memory, and then we'll be able to remember it more. So the more you recall a memory, the stronger it's going to be. The next category is past memories triggered by the environment. And it sounds uh, exactly what it is. So it's past memories that are triggered by the environment. So if you happen to suggest someone um, something about compassion, it doesn't necessarily need it to be related to their actions. The subjects then will choose things that are more related to compassion. And this is because the goal stormed in long-term memory, compassion, is retrieved and placed in short-term memory. So if you're playing a game with people and you're t uh, and it has to do with generosity, let's say it's a money game, uh, but before then you give the control group nothing. You don't give them any prep and they go ahead and play their game. And then you give the experimental, experimental group, maybe you tell them a quote about compassion or a story, or you just slip it into whatever they're doing ever so slightly. That means that when they go play the game, they're going to be thinking about it and then they'll end up being more compassionate. Number five is mood memory, and this one is pretty basic. It means that if we're in a happy mood, we are going to remember happy memories. We're not going to remember sad memories if we're really sad, if we're really happy. Um, so that one is pretty simple, but the next one is blinking out. Uh, it's well named. It just means that if we're super, super stressed out, it actually inhibits our memory. So... Uh, this is kind of an overlap between the attention and paying attention to things uh, that we're feeling emotionally, but also it's specific to stress only. Um, so when stress is the main the main hormone that's going on, it's going to actually inhibit your mem inhib inhibit your memory. And then duration neglect, which is the emphasis on the best and worst part and the ending. It neglects everything else. So it means that if it's a it's a long experience that you're having, it's going to focus on the best part and the worst part and the ending part, and it will neglect everything else because it feels those things are unimportant. And all of these focus on what our brain believes to be the best. So that technically means things of significance, be it emotional or physical. To put it in terms of normal uh Things specific to our lives, most of the time we remember trauma really vividly. It's an evolutionary mechanism so that we do not repeat that trauma. But it's also part of the fact that it was very damaging to us to have experienced that, whatever it happened to be. Or maybe we remember our son's first birthday party because it was a significant time in our lives and it was important to us. We might not remember that one day when we sat in math class learning about integrals because it was just like every other day and does not add anything to who we are, consciously or unconsciously. 
it goes into the sum clump of every day that you learned about integrals in math class. There are a couple other theories, though, um, for why we retain some information and not others. So one pe some people believe that the main reason is that in order for us to perfectly store information and remember it, our senses have to capture them perfectly, and this ties back to the encoding part of remembering. So better capturing of a memory, the better encoding, and then the easier for it to be recalled. For this to happen, our attention and perception must be working at an optimal level. If they aren't, then we will lose information about what has happened. So in terms of working at an optimal level, if we are focused on one really big part of it, such as great sadness that we feel at that moment, then we're going to lose the information about the things that go around us. And so repetition is also very important, so we can consolidate these memories in our mind solidly. Another reason seems to be found in a phenomenon we all fall victim to at some point in our lives. It goes by the name of cognitive dissonance. This is what happens when we maintain two opposing opinions, attitudes, or beliefs in our minds. It is a very uncomfortable feeling and is related to selective memory. In order to alleviate this negative feeling, one tends to discard one of the two opinions, attitudes, or beliefs, and thus remove the conflict. Cognitive dissonance. Uh, there's a couple of different examples of it. So one of them is that you can believe that lying is bad on a moral level, but still be forced to lie in a certain situation. And then because of cognitive dissonance, a person can either not lie or change his belief because he believes in the lie that he's um, telling. So this means that something is gotta, something's got to budge in this situation, and this is the effect of cognitive dissonance. So for this next section, I brought in a very special guest that's actually a really dear friend of mine. Her name is Kiri Saline, and she has a PhD specializing in repressed memories relating to trauma. And I could not be more excited that she's here. So how are you doing tonight, Dr. Saline? I'm doing great. Thank you, Ms. Stanecki. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, so I was hoping that you could give me and our viewers some insight into our repressed memories. Yeah, of course. Okay, so on a basic level, Repressed memories are memories of experiences that did happen to us, but we can't access or recall them. Okay, so let me give you an example. In January 1998, a rape victim reported being assaulted by a close friend whom she trusted. Later, she remembered everything that happened before and after the assault, but couldn't remember the event itself. Later, she finally remembered it and received treatment. But I've heard that there are actually some critics of this notion of repressed memory. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so while there are critics of re memory repression, the only other option to repression is that the victim was lying. But this phenomenon has been seen again and again. But these critics merit mention because for they think that these so-called repressed memories have been suggested by their therapists or that the victims are lying. In World War II, there were a lot of examples of repressed memories that have been carefully documented. In one situation, a patient said that he couldn't see the therapist talking and couldn't hear them. At this point, the therapist was talking about the patient's past trauma, so repressed memories aren't only present in recalling memories, but also processing information pertaining to it. Is there any reason uh, that we have this behavioral mechanism? Like, what purpose does it serve? Well, this behavior is closely tied to evolution. By forgetting traumatic experiences, it allows us to focus on the present, 
It serves as an unconscious defense mechanism in order to live a relatively normal life. Extreme trauma can disrupt long-term storage and leave memories stored as emotions or sensations rather than as memories. Research suggests that it can take up to several days to fully store an event in long-term memory. Because there are so many good things that we'd love to discuss, then will today. That's only the basics of repressed memories, even though the field expands much deeper down the rabbit hole. But if you are interested, I've included links below and have more detail in the Frequently Asked Questions section of the website. Thank you again so much, Dr. Slee. No problem. And for my listeners, the next installment of this series will be coming soon.